you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 21 this morning. Genesis chapter 21 this morning. There's a, a German-born kind of performance artist by the name of A.H. Schultz. A.H. Schultz, I'm not familiar, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's, he goes by the, the trash artist. And so his works are these kind of performance pieces across the world where he takes discarded debris, he takes old cans and computer parts, newspapers, magazines, and he turns them into these kind of pieces, these works of art as he embraces the mess and the leftovers of our world. He, he creates order, and some would even say he creates beauty out of the messiness of life. You know, it's interesting as we come to Genesis chapter 21, as we're walking through the story of Abraham and Sarah, one of the things that we discover in this story is how God embraces us in our messiness. I remind you of where we've been. Last week we were walking through the story of Abraham and Sarah. We, we went to the story of Lot, Abraham's nephew in Sodom and Gomorrah. The rest of the story after the angels uh, saved Lot and his family from uh, what would have been destruction there. The rest of the story is that the spirit of Sodom, as they have left Sodom and Gomorrah, the spirit has not left them, that sinful spirit, it follows them. So in chapter 19, you have the story of Lot's daughters and this sense of this post-apocalyptic trauma they intoxicate their father, and you have the story of, of incest that occurs there in Genesis chapter 19. And the line of the Moabites and the Ammonites are formed out of this messy story. You come to Genesis chapter 20. We can look back and say, thank you, we're out of Sodom and Gomorrah now, and we get a reprieve from the messiness, Right? And then you discover Abraham and Sarah, and they are sojourning in Girhar. And as they get to that place, you think to yourself, okay, finally we're back with, with people that are going to follow God faithfully wrong. Because what you discover is, as a repetition of sin that started in Genesis chapter 12, that follows them in Genesis chapter 20, they, they meet this king, Abimelech. And Abraham, just like he did when they were sojourning in Egypt, he says to his wife, uh, I am going to lose my head unless you say that you are my sister. So just like they did, or he did in Genesis chapter 12, he lies about the identity of his wife, King Abimelech, takes her, his wife, as, her own, as his own. And God, again, just like he did in Genesis chapter 12, he provides salvation from even Abraham's laws and Abraham's uh, messy decisions in that moment. And, and I tell you that to set the context of Genesis chapter 21 here, but it, it is important to say this is the ancestral line of our Savior and our Lord. This is the very lineage of Jesus Christ, the one that we find salvation in, and it is a messy ancestral line. It is an ancestral line filled with sexual sin, drunkenness, lying, betrayal, and doubt. And it's just a reminder that our God can redeem even the messiest of situations. That you came into the sanctuary this morning and mess follows you. There's no doubt about that. 
whether you are a Christian or not a Christian this morning, mess, it, 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 it's in all of our family lines. And so one of the things that is a reminder as we are tracking through the story of Abraham and Sarah this morning is that our God is sovereign even in the midst of imperfect people living imperfect lives in an imperfect world. If you thought for God to use you or for God to be faithful in your life, that you've got to figure everything out and live this perfect line, uh, life, you, you have, have gravely misunderstood the, the narrative of Scripture that we discover right here in the book of Genesis. And so we turn to Genesis chapter 21 as the messiness still continues as God is sovereign in the workings of his people here to redeem even their messy decisions. Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So we've been walking through this passage here, or starting in Genesis chapter 12 at the beginning of, of this fall semester here. So we've been months into this story. And one of the things that's interesting is, is that we've been waiting. We, we started this story with the promise of Genesis chapter 12, that God was going to bless Abraham and out of Abraham's lineage, there is going to be the blessing of all the nations. He's going to give him land. He's going to make him a blessing. But this is the problem, that they could not have children. So we've been walking through the, the last nine chapters waiting for this moment. And isn't it sort of anticlimactic that, that we just have the story told to us so matter-of-factly here? Verse 2, Sarah conceived, for Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. So what is crucial about this birth announcement isn't that the angels were heralding it, isn't that the hallelujah chorus started up here, they weren't shepherds in the fields uh, that, that are going to see this. It is spare in detail, this birth announcement, but what is most important in this story here is that only God can make it happen. Chapter 21 is, is giving one theme. Only God could do what is occurring here. There are no biological necessities that are occurring in Genesis chapter 21. There is supernatural intervention here. And this is only made possible by God. So Sarah laughs. She laughs not in disbelief. She laughs not in skepticism, but the disbelief of her previous laughter, the skepticism of her previous laughter, as you've been tracking through the story, it is replaced with joyous laughter. Isaac, the very namesake here, the very one that they, they will have to be the promised child, his name actually means he laughs. So there's a theme all throughout the story of Abraham and Sarah, and there's a theme of laughter, and it's a, it's a theme of, of laughter accompanying disbelief. It's laughter that accompanies skepticism, and now that laughter is continuing, but it is a laughter of joy. There's a laughter of rejoicing here. 
as Sarah, who is uh, nine decades old, is nursing a child, there is exuberant joy because only God could do what he is doing in this moment. So we're not surprised that Isaac would be doled over. We're not surprised that Isaac, uh, as he is the one who they have been longing for, as Sarah has desired a child, now that she has a child, it is not surprising that everyone in their household would be exuberantly joy-filled except for who wouldn't feel that excited about this news. We can imagine uh, eight days after uh, Isaac is born and he is circumcised, you you can imagine Ishmael and Hagar that are off into the corner here and everybody is doling over Isaac here. And you can imagine Ishmael not feeling at home any longer now that his half-brother has been born here. There is trouble around the corner after the first sound of Isaac's cry and we read of that trouble In Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 8. And the child grew. That child being Isaac, he was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham. And what was he doing? He was laughing. We got laughter of disbelief and skepticism in the previous chapters. We got laughter of abundant, exuberant joy by Sarah. And now in verses 8 and 9, we have Ishmael who takes up that theme of laughter. But it is not a laughter of joy-filled exuberance. Rather, it is going to be a laughter of mocking ridicule that he gives to his brother. Now, verse 8. Isaac, at this time, we fast forward in the first seven verses, we have fast forward now to three years down the road. So chapters one or verses one through seven give us the first few days. At verse eight, we get Isaac, the traditional time of weaning would have been at the age of three. If you go back to Genesis chapter 17, around verse 25, you would see that at that time, Uh, Ishmael would have been about 13 years old. So just imagine this. You have Ishmael, who now is 14. You have Isaac, who is now three. This is going to be a difficult time for Ishmael, no doubt. He's being displaced by his younger brother. The affections of his father now are divided, uh, to say the least, between Isaac, the promised child, and Ishmael, who was, who was had between uh, this sinful uh, shortcut between Abraham and his mother here. So you don't have to have a Ph.D. in psychology. You, you don't have to have a Ph.D. in psychology to realize that this living arrangement here is going to exasperate sibling rivalries. I grew up with two younger brothers. Many of you have uh, siblings, and you know what siblings can be like. You know what brothers can say. Uh, we, we would say some of the meanest things that we possibly could say in the moment of frustration and in the moment of anger. That, that's just a part of growing up. That's a part of having brothers. So there's everything about this mocking laughter. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 29, he sort of fills out what type of laughter Ishmael is giving to Isaac. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul says that Ishmael is persecuting Isaac through his laughter. 
So there is a a mocking laughter here. As I said, brothers can be rough. And so Sarah sees what Ishmael is doing to Isaac. And this for her is the last straw. So we're not surprised that she would say to her husband, get rid of that slave woman. Get rid of Ishmael, her son. For that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. We're not surprised that she would say, okay, we need, to, we need to cut and we need to run and they need to go on and we need to have our nuclear family here. There's a distraction here. And so Abraham, in this moment of Genesis chapter 21, there is, you can, you can see between the lines, there's a sense of him being pulled. There's no doubt. And so God comes to Abraham and, and reassures him, it is through Isaac, God says to Abraham, It is through Isaac that there's going to be a great nation. My people will be formed, but I assure you, God says to Abraham, that Ishmael will also be the father of a great nation. So with that reassurance, we read, starting in verse 14, of what occurs next in our story. In Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 14, we read, So Abraham rose early in the morning. He took bread and a skin of water. He gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. She departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and she sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice He heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and what did she see? She saw a well of water, and she went and she filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. And he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. In Genesis chapter 21 verse 14, Abraham sends off Ishmael. And in the original language of the Hebrew language, that that phrase sent off would have been a phrase that in the rest of the Old Testament at times was utilized as a legal divorce. To send away was, was a legal divorce. So Abraham is severing any of his legal uh, responsibilities and obligations. I mean, he, they, they are severing paths. From now on, Hagar and Ishmael are, are outside of the, of the tent of Abraham's protection here. All that Abraham gives are the supplies of food and water. And what we discover is those supplies, while we don't have the time frame, they run out. Now, how in the world did this tragic situation become so quickly a dire and even deathly situation? And you know something we don't know. We can imagine that maybe Hagar, in the midst of this journey, gets lost in the midst of the desert. We don't know what happens as this goes from tragic to a deadly situation. But what we do see in this passage is this teenage boy weeping along with his mother in the midst of the desert. They're out of food. They're out of water. Hagar, the mother, shelters him under a bush 
away from the piercing sun, the silence of the desert is filled with the audible weeping of a mom and her son. The son and this mother are destitute, they're helpless, and the silence of death is crouching at their door. And then that silence is broken. In verse 17, by God who hears the voice of the boy. A God who in this passage would open Hagar's eyes to a well of water. And what we discover in the midst of Hagar and Ishmael's isolation, in the midst of their desolation, what we discover is that God provides in the midst of their loss. Uh, You can underline, you can put an asterisk by, you can circle, you can do whatever with verse 20 because it is a passage that we need to hold on to. Verse 20 says, God was with the boy and he grew up. I mean, notice what the writer of Genesis 21 is telling us here, God was with Ishmael. Yes, that child, Ishmael. The the child who will grow to be the father of a rebellious nation that will be the enemy of the Israelites. God was with that boy. Yes, God was with the boy, Ishmael, who was born out of wedlock in this sinful compromise that would result in dissension and jealousy that would hound Sarah, even to Genesis chapter 21 and beyond, as we could imagine. God was not just with Isaac, the promised child. God was not just with Isaac, the one that was promised in Genesis chapter 21 or Genesis chapter 12, but he was promised and he was with the promised Uh, He was with this son, Ishmael, who was disregarded and who was despised. And so Hagar and Ishmael are at the end of their rope. They are alone and they are left for dead. And God shows up in their need. What we need to be reminded of this morning is, is while the details change, this is a true story, not only in Genesis chapter 21, but this is a true story even today. While the details change, this God who is with the boy, this God who is with this single mother in the midst of her isolation and her desolation, that that same God who would move in the midst of their desperation is a God who continues to move even in the desperation of people even today. Just imagine with me, it's a single mom. And the single mother is is around her kitchen room table there, and she is in a wilderness and is a wilderness not of her own choosing. Her bills are spread out before her. Her two boys are asleep in their two-bedroom apartment. The boys are sharing these bunk beds in the room. It is late. She should be asleep, but she can't go to sleep because she's trying to reconcile the math of her monthly budget. She's got a notebook, sheet of paper, and on one side of it, she's got child support, and she's got her part-time jobs, the two of them that she's trying to get by with in the midst of this difficulty. She's tallied all of her income up on the other side. She's got rent listed. She's got a car note that's listed. She's got uh, insurance that's listed. She's got her grocery bill that is listed. She's got the new set of tires that the mechanic said that she desperately needed that is listed. She has in a big question mark beside it her son's clothes and shoes that she knows that she needs to get. They're a little too tight, but maybe the boys can get through this one season and just get on to the next season that is before them there. The the boys, before they went out to to bed, they they made Santa Claus list. 
And they ran in there to her. And they, you know, you can imagine boys. I mean, it's front and back of all the things that they're going to ask Santa for. And she just kind of sheepishly made a joke out of him. And she said, you know, boys, this is great, but very well may be that Santa is on a little bit tighter of a budget this year than he was last year. That they are traveling in the midst of wilderness. The boys don't know that they're in the midst of the wilderness, but the mom does. It's a wilderness that she never imagined that she would travel in. It's a wilderness that she never imagined she would travel down when 11 years ago she said, I do to their father. And then six months ago when the divorce was finalized, never more in her life has she felt alone. Never more in her life has she felt hopeless. Never more in her life has she felt as if everything was coming upon her own shoulders and she cannot bear the weight of responsibility that is upon her in this moment. Now, she doesn't know it. She doesn't know it. But, but in her tears, this evening... God is going to bring about a work in her life. God is going to meet her in her tears. Now, she's, gonna, she's not going to know it. But in this night, for the first time in years, she is going to bow her head and she is going to pray out of the depth of her pain, God, I cannot do this anymore. Help. And she will hear, I promise you, she will hear no voices from heaven this evening in her apartment room uh, kitchen table there. She, she's, no, she's not going to hear a choir of angels serenade to her in the midnight silence of the apartment. She doesn't know it this evening, but into the next morning, God is going to direct her to a well of water that very next morning. She's going to get up that morning. And while she can't really even consciously say why she makes this decision, she's going to drag her boys out of their beds with them kicking and screaming, not wanting to get up, wanting to sleep just a little bit longer. But all three of them, she says, they need a fresh start. So they're going to go to that church that they've passed many times as they've gone down the road to their new apartment complex. Now, she doesn't know it that day, and she's not going to know it that night where she's weeping at her kitchen room table here, but she is going to be provided with a well of water and a group of ladies that she's going to meet in that church. They're going to rally around her. She doesn't know it as she weeps that evening over her bills, but a well of provision is coming her way. She's not going to win the lottery. She's not going to win $476 million in the Powerball. That's not coming her way. She's not going to become a CEO of a corporation. She's not going to name anything, nor is she going to claim anything. But she's going to meet weeks later, months later, she's going to meet someone at that church who has a position that she's going to say, you might need to apply for this. And she, for the first time in her single life, is going to have a little bit of stability and insurance and that uh, ledger between one side of her bills and her income for the first time in months, there is a semblance of being able to get by for the first time from paycheck to paycheck. She doesn't know it yet, but there are going to be men in that church that are going to love her boys. There are going to be men in that church that are going to teach them in Sunday school. They're going to be coaches in upward basketball. They're going to be youth group chaperones. She doesn't know their names. She doesn't know their faces, but they're coming. She doesn't know them as she weeps over her bills, but that morning as she cries that Saturday night, on Sunday morning, she is going to taste the first drop of water upon her parched soul. 
Now, maybe you're here tonight or this morning and, and you're not a, a single mom. Maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you're not in the details of, of that story here, but I want you to hear that you're in this story. Because God is calling you to point people to the source of living water that he will provide. Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All of us, all of us in this room have to come to that place in, in the desert of our isolation, in the desert of our sin, that we turn from self and we turn to God. All of us walk through that desert as we come to that place where we bow our knees in repentance, we bow our knees in, in admission that we cannot save ourselves. All of us in this room, we have to travel that desert to, to discover the living water of salvation. But as you travel that desert, there are, there are others that come behind you here. And there, there are some of you in this room that need to be reminded that God has, for such a time as this, put you in certain neighborhoods, in certain workplaces, in certain schools, because there are Hagars and there are Ishmaels that you are going to intersect, and they are at the end of their rope. There are men and there are women, some are divorced, some are widowed, some are depressed, some are grieving, some are wandering, some are wondering, and they are at the end of their ropes and they're wondering, where can I drink the water that will sustain me? And this is the glorious good news of all of us that are in this room as Christians. Ishmael and the Ishmaels of our own communities, they are not there by the choices of themselves oftentimes. Oftentimes they're, they're walking a desert road in isolation because of choices other people have made. Some have been neglected, some have been abandoned, some have been abused. But what we need to be reminded of is that God is with them in their tears. And Christian here this morning, we as the body of Christ here this morning, we are called to bear each other's burdens. We are called to be the hand and feet, not to provide salvation, but through our good works to point people to the source of that living water that if we drink of, we will thirst no more. There are Ishmaels in the zip codes that we live in. There are Ishmaels in the zip codes that we live next to who are in need of water, and the water is only the water that Christ can provide. And he will use you as an answer to their prayer as you step in the gap. As you show kindness and love and consideration and prayers, there's some of you that are coaches, some of you are teachers, some of you are administrators in this very room here. And of course, you are called to do a good job as a history teacher. You're called to teach reading with excellence. You're called to coach with excellence. You're called to be a geometry teacher with excellence. But don't be mistaken that there are Hagars and there are Ishmaels that are in your classrooms. Don't be mistaken here this morning that there are Ishmaels that sit in those desks before you. And it very well may be that you are going to point them through your kindness, through your love, through your prayers, through the remembrance of their name, through the way that you show a personal interest in them. You're going to point them to living water. There's some of you in this room that you volunteer at Kids Connection or you volunteer at the Learning Center. Now, why do we do that? Well, of course, educational needs are important. Of course, there's systemic poverty needs that are important. But ultimately, we have those ministries as a church to point people to the living water, that if they drink of that water, they will thirst 
no more. There's some of you in this room that God has called you to orphan care ministry. There's some of you that are praying in this very room about fostering. You're praying about adoption. Why? Because in the Alabama and the Birmingham zip codes in which we are around and next to and live in, there are children who cry themselves to sleep in the desert of the circumstances that they did not choose on their own. And God hears those cries. And he's drawn to those cries. And he embraces them in the midst of their hurt, in the midst of the hopeless situation in which they're there. And one of the ways that he does that is through your hands, through your feet, through your pocketbook, through your home, through your love, through your care, through your prayers. We're called to be the body of Christ. The body of Christ who says the goal in life isn't for us just to get things as comfortable as we possibly can get them for our nuclear family. And once we have all of our T's crossed and our I's dotted, we can think about how can we have it as comfortable as we possibly can for those that come behind us. That is not the goal in life. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there are cries in the wilderness, there are cries in the desert that draw us to our knees in prayer. God, how would you call us to meet those needs? See, the question is, one Sunday morning, she got up and she went to the church. A really good question was, did she come to this church? Was she welcome in your life groups? Was she welcome on your pew? Did you look her in the eyes? Did you take the time to hear in her say, I'm having a good morning, that there was something else going? There are Hagar's and there are Ishmael's all around us. If we would just open our eyes to see the needs that are around us here, and our God cares for them in their tears, God provides water of hope and of love and of care and of comfort and of salvation that flows ultimately from Him. But you and I are called to point people to that source of living water will we be found faithful to care for the Hagars to care for the Ishmaels in our own community let us pray Gracious God, we come to you this morning understanding that you are a God who meets us in our brokenness. And there are none of us in this room who will get through life without coming to that place of the desert of circumstances. Of difficulties that, that ultimately we realize that we cannot do this on our own. And so, so we must turn away from our self-sufficiency to the only sole source of salvation. That is you, our Savior and Lord. And there, there are hundreds of people in this room that have made that journey. At the age of 6 or the age of 16 or 26 or 36 or 46 and beyond. We're following you. We know you. And you're calling us this morning to have a vision that is beyond our own self-sufficiency, beyond our own comfort. You're calling this church, and this church has a wonderful heritage of listening for the cries of those in our community and beyond, pointing people to the sole source of living water, 
Give us eyes to see this week. Give us ears to hear. At work, in our neighborhood, in our life groups, on the ball field, in band and cheerleading, in our classrooms at Sanford or UAB or whatever school that we go to, give us eyes, give us ears to hear the cries and to know that even today, even today, you would call us to point people to you, the sole source of living water. May we follow you to the people you've called us to, even this week, to be that answer in your name we pray.